Mark McKinnon says we're testing the guardrails of democracy and they're holding so far. How long can they last? That's not something even one of the most successful political strategists ever can say for sure. This is the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine. Welcome, I'm Andy Langer. This edition of the National Podcast of Texas is brought to you by the Carbach Brewing Company of Houston, Texas. We're here with a timely chat about Kavanaugh, Beto, and Mueller with the creator and co-host of Showtime's political documentary series, The Circus, Mark McKinnon. These days, Mark McKinnon doesn't run campaigns, he covers their consequences. And this week, he was supposed to spend the week in Texas, shooting a Texas-specific episode of The Circus. They had plans to shadow Willie Nelson at Saturday night's Beto O'Rourke rally in Austin, before heading to Houston for what would have been O'Rourke's second debate with Ted Cruz. Then they were to check in on the border crisis and return back to Austin in time to clock some leisure time at Friday's kickoff of the Austin City Limits Music Festival. Instead, McKinnon appeared on a handful of panels at the Texas Tribune Festival, taped this episode of the National Podcast of Texas, and flew back to D.C. to craft an episode about the intense battle over Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Even for so seasoned of a political operative, McKinnon says when they named their show The Circus towards the end of 2015, they couldn't have realized how prophetic the title would be. McKinnon's a University of Texas graduate who helped strategize major campaigns for Ann Richards, Bob Bullock, George W. Bush, and John McCain. And a lot of his early ambition and political interests stem from Billy Lee Brammer's The Gay Place. In a review he's written about a new biography of Brammer for an upcoming issue of Texas Monthly, he describes the book as not just a great Texas novel, but a great American novel. In fact, I would argue it's the great American political novel. The Gay Place, The Kavanaugh Debate, O'Rourke's campaign, and what might become of the Mueller investigation are at the heart of our conversation, recorded midday Friday in our Austin studio. Welcome. So you roll in with a big gulp and half a bad sandwich from 7-Eleven. <laughs> yeah. This is your life right this now. Is, this is the life. This is the life of the road. It reminds me of being a 19-year-old musician. You know, I'm just grabbing it where I can, and it ain't real healthy. Is this the best in times, worst of times to do what you do? Well, it's a it's a spectacular uh, train wreck that we're in the middle of. Um, you know, it's uh, the great irony of Donald Trump is that as much as he attacks the media, uh, this is kind of the golden age for media. If there had been uh, if, if it had been President Clinton, there never would have been a season two of our show. And I didn't think there'd be a season two. We just, I thought this would be, we do a behind the scenes of the campaign, which is really colorful all over, all over America. And it was dramatic and fascinating and surprising. And I thought we'd be, I thought that was it. And then a week into this administration, the president of Showtime called up and said, circus hadn't stopped, get back out there. And I was skeptical. I was like, I don't know, it's Washington. It's kind of static. How interesting will that be? Well, I was completely wrong. I mean, our ratings are double digits over, you know, year over year, and they just keep getting better. Just, you know, because people are fascinated by what's going on. What makes really good, compelling, interesting drama? Three main things. Interesting characters, conflict, and surprise. And we get that every single day. In fact, when they first gave us the show... They said, we're going to do 26 episodes. And I thought, oh, man, that's a lot of TV. And I just thought there'd be weeks where there wouldn't be that much going on never happened not once is the and i use this loosely genius of trump that 
because of the reality television background, he knows how to weave a storyline. No question he knows how to weave a storyline. I mean, <clears throat> uh, great. We think about uh, um, narrative architecture in terms of books and culture and movies, uh, you know, storylines and storytelling. It's just as true for, for campaigns or, or successful businesses or whatever. You know, great campaigns tell, us, tell a story. They have a narrative arc. And what do we mean by that? When we talk to candidates who say, well, it's really usually something like the following filter. You identify a threat uh, or an opportunity, identify the victims of that threat or denied opportunity, identify the villains imposing the threat or denying the opportunity, propose a solution, reveal the hero. That's kind of the classic storyline. Now think about that with Donald Trump. Threat, immigrants, others coming into our country, opportunity, make America great again. Victims, blue-collar Americans who've lost their uh, uh, quality of life, diminishing job opportunities, falling paychecks. Uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 villains, um, uh, Chinese uh, media elites in Washington, Mexican rapists coming over the border. Solution: build the wall, tear up the trade deals, drain the swamp, reveal the hero, Donald Trump. What was Hillary Clinton's story? I have no idea. Except that authenticity usually plays into this. Well, th- that he's never felt authentic. I mean. Well, I think here. Uh, let me push back on that. All right. Uh, you, you know, uh, as, as Ronald Reagan said, <laughs> said something about faking authenticity, but uh, but I would say to his supporters, there's nothing more authentic uh, f- than Donald Trump, and that's why they voted for him. But here, here's an example why. So when Donald Trump gave his uh, his his um, announcement speech, so in a campaign, there's like three opportunities that you have to really move the numbers. Uh, one is your announcement speech, two is the debates, and three is like your uh, a nomination speech at the convention and you're, when you're picking your vice president. Those three, you know, th- those are three opportunities where you can really move n- numbers because lots of people are watching. And, and never more so, and, and never is it more unfiltered than when you announce because the press kind of gives you a free pass. It's just like, okay, why are you running? And <clears throat> so that's something that, you know, just as a, uh, having done a lot of campaigns, because of that opportunity, how important it is. We spend a lot of time on that, you know, like not just weeks, but months preparing that speech, you know, working with a candidate. What's your story? What's your rationale? You know, what's your vision? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, and then we go through lots of drafts of it. You know, with George Bush, it was probably 20 drafts of it and just getting it just right, get it in his voice and then practice it, get practice it with a teleprompter, get it down to the, you know, where even they, you know, have it memorized. So flash forward to Donald Trump, and remember he came down the, the stairway at Trump Tower. He walks up on that stage, and he literally made it up on the spot. I'm rich. Man, the rapists coming to Mexico. Uh, build me a website. I mean, it it was it would it couldn't have been clearer that uh, that he he didn't have a speech. They didn't really even think much about what he's going to say until he walked onto that stage, and yet. And so, you know, the, uh, the professionals on business, we were like, oh, my God, this is, a, this is unheard of, you know, and we were all like, this, this you know, this ain't going to fly. And then, but that's exactly what his supporters want to see. Why? Because everything about it to them was authentic because he was saying, I'm different. I'm not the same old thing. I'm not scripted. I'm just going to tell you what's exactly on my mind. So for them, that's entirely authentic. Even though he's the rich guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who's supposed to be the savior of the poor guy. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 a great irony, but uh but he is their guy. He's the guy that wants to go up there and break stuff and that's what that's what they want him to do. Knowing how the sausage is made in the way that you do, 
every time we say, oh, well, you got to throw out the playbook, everything's different now. Is that frustrating or is that interesting to you in that you know exactly how it's supposed to be? And now none of that yeah. seems to matter. Well, no, it's it's fascinating to me. Uh, when George W. Bush asked me to do the advertising for the presidential campaign, I was, you know, for 10 seconds ecstatic, and then I was petrified. I was like, oh, my God, I, this is a huge job. I'm not prepared for it. I'm not sure I can do it. So I went back, and I st- one of the things I did was, I, you know, I went, like, to all the, went back and studied all presidential advertising, going back to Eisenhower. I went and I talked to all the sort of people still living who did it in some of the great campaigns over the years and it was really interesting what I learned in fact I used to have a whole presentation I did just about the evolution of presidential advertising or political advertising because what happens is it's, it, it changes over time and it evolves and you can see what happens is that sort of the market gets used to it and it kind of stops working and then you they we do something different to make it work and uh, uh, so the one thing that I know for sure is that the rules aren't static. I mean, that, that you're you're dead if you're static. If you run the last campaign, you're going to be on the losing side. And the, you know, whoever's looking forward and kind of reinventing and understanding how communications is changing, or you're changing it yourself, those are the people who are usually coming out on top. And um, you know, Donald Trump uh, really threw out the playbook. I mean, a lot of the things that we thought you had to do, he said, "Yep, no." Nope. We're doing it a different way, and sure enough, it worked. But the playbook all around has changed. So you've got a Supreme Court nominee literally screaming at senators. Yeah. You've got advertisements, campaign ads for a Supreme Court nominee that you and I can't vote for. I mean, it's all different. Well, yeah. It's, As it's, a result, yeah, sure. the trickle no, down. No. I mean, the, the, I mean, the thing is that that you know, Donald Trump is a is a reflection of a much broader things happening in our culture and society and around the world. Uh, you know, everything's changing, and it's a result of. I mean, we could talk for hours about why it's that way, but we're living in a different universe, uh, and uh, uh, you know, and and Trump is dominating every single conversation in Washington, in the country, and around the world. How differently should we be looking at Bush now? Are we already at the point where his legacy has changed dramatically with not really any doing of his own? Miss him yet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's that. Uh, I mean, nothing has been better for George W. Bush's legacy than Donald Trump. I mean, it really is. And I'm about to go do a, a panel for TribFest on, you know, just this subject. And so I've been thinking a little bit about it. But, you know, one of the things that attracted me and many others to support George W. Bush in Texas was that really before he came along, Texas was a two-party state. You were a progressive uh, liberal Democrat or you were a conservative Democrat. It's kind of Ralph Yarborough Democrat or Lloyd Benson Democrat. And then George Bush came to town and said, I'm a compassionate conservative. And a bunch of us said, oh, that's what I am. That's what I am. And, uh, you know, it was a really interesting time, a really bipartisan time when he worked with Bob Bullock. And, uh, and he was talking about proactively in, a, in an embracing way about immigration, about education. Um, and those were things that really appealed to me. And, and traditional kind of Republican uh, ideas. Um, and what's astonishing is that not only did Trump win the nomination, but he has completely reshaped and refashioned what the Republican Party is. It's nothing like George W. Bush. George W. Bush wouldn't get through a Republican primary today. 
the idea that, for instance, Lawrence Wright's book a couple of months ago, that Texas is this bellwether and that what happens here winds up reflecting what's going on everywhere else. I mean, you've had the longest look at that. Yeah. Where do you stand on that? Well, you're, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the Tea Party really started here. Um, and uh, so it's fascinating to watch. And, of course, uh, if, if it is the bellwether, you know, there's, there's a very interesting race in the Senate here. And uh, the, the fact that it's competitive is remarkable. You know, I, I was thinking about this race and thinking about the no. You know, of course, a, a, a Democrat hasn't won statewide in Texas for a quarter of a century. And I, I, I say that uh, you know it would probably take the second coming of Jesus to uh, to win statewide as a Democrat. But you know what? I think Beto O'Rourke's walking on water. You wrote for us many years ago a piece. I think it was your retirement piece, essentially, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> in oh, yeah. 1996. Oh, yeah. uh, but you wrote about your campaign early on helping Buddy Romer, and you said, we drove around the state parish by parish. He grabbed newspaper editors and publishers by the lapels and say, this is our chance to break from the past. We can break from politics that have dragged the state into the swamp of thieves and crooks. For once, we don't have to look at the horse race. Look at the horse. We can make a difference if you're willing to make a difference. That's the Beto campaign wow, in a nutshell, I, isn't it? I'd completely forgotten about that, but you know what? That's exactly it. That's, that's really... Thanks for reminding me of that. That's that's fascinating because that's exactly right. I mean, he's he's throwing out the rule book too in the playbook. You know, I mean, he's he's doing it in such a unique way. I mean, first of all, he's just charismatic. Uh, but second of all, he is doing things differently. I mean, he's you know the notion of going to 254 counties. If you had asked me that as a strategist, I'd say that's ridiculous. But you know what? It's working for him, and you know it's working precisely. I think in sort of the same way that Donald Trump did. Say, you know, I, the reason that I'm doing this is that I don't want to be like everybody else. You know, if, if that way hasn't worked very well, and that's kind of Beto O'Rourke's message, and, and you know, in a different way, but 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 it's still entirely authentic. You know, whatever you think of it, it's it's it it it, 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 it you know, he comes off as a, you know very human, compelling guy who's just doing it his way. And uh, like I said, the fact that it's close is it says a whole lot about him and maybe something about Texas too. But doesn't it say more about the lack of popularity for Ted Cruz? I mean, this is one of those situations where it's somebody, it's the maybe the right guy at the right time, but it's because this guy's so unpopular. Well, I mean, just, you just look at any other race uh, on the ballot, really. Uh, you know, look at any of the standard races. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how how much is Greg Abbott up fifteen points or something. You know, so so a an average Republican or a typical Republican should be running. 10 points ahead, let's just say, you know, and the fact that it's close, you know, says something not only about Beto, but says something about Cruz. But you don't necessarily buy a blue wave? Well, uh, I think in this electoral environment, anything could happen. And, you know, I think Beto could put lightning in a bottle. I mean, if anybody could do it, he's the guy. He's the guy. But but listen, you know, at the same time, I've, I've been, you know, I've been here for 40 years and I've heard this before, uh, and you know, on just some of the, you know, to be open to, you know, shutting down ICE, open to, you know, uh, marijuana legalization, anti-NRA, uh, you know, just the the old <laughs> political consultant me says, you know, that I, I don't know how you get over that in Texas, but you know, uh, more power to him if he does, and it just again says just uh, a lot about him and how compelling his candidacy is. 
And 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 I think you know how excited Democrats are this election too. I mean they are they are jamming, and I think this this whole week that we just been through is going to only get Democrats more animated. Yeah, I mean with this Kavanaugh situation, Kavanaugh situation, right? If they just confirm them, then the there's the potential for the blue wave for right. even more of a blue wave. Yes, for people. Yeah, I've been saying about that. Women. I said if they yeah. confirm them, that to me, I believe what's going to happen is that'll be a short term win and a long term loss for Republicans because I think that will. Democrats will go crazy. Now, if we, they don't, the base stays home because they're angry. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, um, uh, yeah, so I think that this this whole process has been well. It's, <laughs> I mean, we just got thrown a whole wrench in it today with Jeff Flake um, calling for the FBI investigation, which is what I've been saying all along. I mean, what I can't, you know, I I know and work with Brett Kavanaugh, and I. And I and I believe that he will actually be, if he's confirmed, I think he'll actually be a good Supreme Court justice, uh, contrary to... Uh, Everything we saw yesterday? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in fact, yes. Um, I mean, I think that was a very scripted performance, and they, he, he, I mean, that was a throw-deep uh, performance uh, that he had to kind of lock up the Republicans on that, deal but but what I'll say about that is a couple of things to my democratic friends one is just from what I know of him and listen how often are we wrong about these things you know the serial killer kills everybody in the person next door he was such a nice boy <laughs> but but from what I know he is a he is not an ideologue and he is not a he's not a partisan hack and he is very thoughtful and he'll be a consensus builder on the court and I think 10 years from now if he's confirmed uh, we'll see that he'll he'll be a suitor like or Kennedy like justice, I think. But 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 I also think that if he goes down, that beware Democrats of what comes next because Trump will double down, and then we're going to get this woman who's on the list who's who is truly an ideologue. And I don't think I don't think Kavanaugh would overturn Roe v. Wade. I think I think he he, he is a safe bet on Roe. But anyway, that's we're getting in the weeds. Well, but if Kavanaugh were to get through, how do we not know that he's not? The guy with an axe to grind, who's talking about a Clinton conspiracy well, in a great. Listen, I, I think everybody would have every right to think that, given yesterday's performance. But what I was going to, but my my point is my hopeful thought, and I'm an eternal optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope, to steal Cory <laughs> Booker's line. But I think that Brett Kavanaugh is exactly the kind of guy that would turn around, get nominated, and and uh, and be completely completely turn around on the partisan stuff and just say, I'm a Supreme Court justice now. I'm putting that all behind me. I am going to be a thoughtful, you know, nonpartisan. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I just I don't think the, I don't think what we saw yesterday is, is the true character of Brett Kavanaugh. I hope not. Uh, and I think that he would, you know, his his I think as a Supreme Court justice, if it happens that he would be, uh, you know, he, he, it would be to be a good Supreme Court justice and not a, you know, a right wing ideologue trying to get back at the Democrats. Let's go back to the Daily Texan. You were at the Daily Texan. I was at the Daily Texan. When were you there? Uh, 1990 to 94, somewhere in there. You're a young man. Uh, well, relative to, <laughs> <laughs> to you and Bagala and yeah. that crew. But that was a time, I mean, if you look at that now, the people that that paper turned out that then had a real hand in shaping our political future, that's crazy. It was a good crop. It was a good crop. It was a good bunch of people, and also John Schwartz and Burke Breathed, and you know it was an interesting group that came through. 
But I mean, it taught you what? Well, the Daily Texan. Yeah. Well, first of all, it was like I think the best job I ever had in my whole life. I mean, to have that kind of freedom uh, at, at such a young age when you when you're such an idiot, you know. And but but I got to say anything I wanted about anybody I wanted to, and uh, and to to do that. And, to, and I, I you know I'd go to the hole in the wall across the street. We'd finish you know at night and wait for the wait for the papers to come off the printing press and that fresh smell of ink and I, God, just that whole process I, I love to see it come out and be on the newsstands uh, it was a ton of fun by the way an interesting thing happened uh, while I was editor uh, I, I got arrested uh, and spent uh, uh, not much time but uh, but the, I got jailed briefly for uh, failure uh, because I was found in contempt of court because uh, some Iranian students, this was in 1980 during the Iranian hostage crisis, and a speaker from Iran had come over that the students didn't like, uh, that the Iranian students here on campus didn't like, so they protested in a very civil way. But the local authorities, kind of to get back at what was going on in Iran, just jackbooted these guys, arrested them all, and then prosecuted them, and they wanted our unpublished negatives. Um, and so, of course, I did what any responsible editor would have done, which was refuse to, and then they found me in contempt of court and, and jailed me. But the the interesting part of that story is I had a, the best lawyer in town, Jim George, which all the newspapers got together and helped hire. And he, you know, he did he just did circles around the prosecutors and sprung me almost immediately. Uh, but I, I, in my conversations with Jim, it was like, okay, this is done, it's over. It's like, don't worry about this thing. It's like it's expunged off your record or whatever. So I, I literally just kind of forgot about it in terms of any kind of legal overhang in my life. Uh, and so when I got appointed by George W. Bush to a con- Senate-confirmed position, um, I went through an FBI check. And the FBI said, have you ever been convicted of a, you know, I guess it was a, f- f- uh, you know, a crime, whatever. And uh, and I literally just didn't even think about it. I was just like, you know, I was thinking, you know, like serious shit, like, you know, armed robbery or whatever. <laughs> and I was just like, I just, and, and my nickname is Magoo, too, and that's the reason why, or else I would have thought of it, obvious, because it's such an obvious thing. This is, And so I was like, no, no, I, no. And so they call me two weeks later, and this is post-9-11, and they're right. like, uh, is there a reason, Mr. McKinnon, that you chose not to tell us that you defended Iranian students? And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and needless to say, my security check took a lot longer. Plus, you cheated your way, or you ran a campaign to become editor that might have been a little shady. Well, uh, <laughs> the what happened is that... Uh, uh, the two people that were running against each other, there was a three-person race, and there were two others involved, and they got into a uh, a crossfire against each other that I believe that my campaign manager slipped some information to one of the other candidates about the other guy, and they took on each other in classic uh, oppo research, the foreshadowing of things to come in my life. I was going to say, that's something you never did again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when did the gay place enter all this are you already at the texan when you read yeah, the gay place saying, for the first time yeah right around that time you know and it was uh it, it, it was then and is now the best i just say the best book i've ever read you know just for because of uh because a it was just great writing it was uh, it was about politics which i'd begun to get interested in and journalism and austin and uh uh, it just it just kind of was a seminal moment in my life, and uh, it just 
And I and I think that uh, and I, I'm writing a, a, a review for the for the magazine about uh, the, the upcoming biography of Brammer, and uh, and it really kind of uh, inspired to some degree my interest in going into politics. You know, I I, I take it back to the gay place. Um, you know, I, I read about it. It's like I want to go do that. I I, I want to go be in that world. And then I went and hooked up with Paul Begallon, James Carville, and Lloyd Doggett. In that nothing is the same as it used to be, is a book like that relevant anymore? I mean, you call it the great American political novel. I th- I think it is. You know, I, I it I, it holds up uh, for me, and I think that it's just as interesting and and relevant as as the day it was written. Uh, you know, I read it uh, back then. You know, so I was early twenty something. And I kind of related to uh, the younger characters in the book. And then I read it like 15 years or so, maybe 20 years later when I was older. And I related to a whole other set of characters. And by the way, here's an interesting side note on that. When I read it the second time, I was on an airplane. And when I finished the book, I cl- kind of closed it. And, uh, and then I looked across the aisle. And sitting across the aisle from me, I swear to God, it was Lady Bird Johnson. Wow. Now, a little backstory for you here. She was largely responsible for kind of putting the nail in Billy Lee Brammer's coffin in terms of doing the biography of LBJ after he acceded to the presidency because she read the book and hated it. Because uh, it's ostensibly about Johnson. Yeah, well, it's ostensibly about Johnson and not enough about her and, and a pretty colorful portrait of Johnson, which I think was pretty accurate, but not one that she liked. Uh, and so when the pl- I thought I'd, it seemed like a... Uh, uh, you know that this was a uh, uh, some kind of you know moment that was uh, meant to be somehow that, I, that that she was there and I just finished the book and uh, sort of fate was intervening here in some weird Billy Lee way and so when we got off the plane I walked up to her and I bent back the uh, the cover so she couldn't see what it was and I got her to sign it so I have a I have a copy of the Gay Place signed by Lady Bird wow. Johnson. <laughs> Is there a through line that connects? these disparate political figures from Texas, whether it's Johnson, Ann Richards, Bush, Beto and Cruz, is there some kind of maverick spirit? Is there some? Is there something that connects them? I think so. Uh, and I'll say that as somebody who came here, I grew up in Colorado, and, and Colorado has this weird thing about Texas. They just don't like Texans generally. And I think it's you know, I used to spend time making ice balls as a kid to throw at cars with Texas plates. Uh, and, and I think it ties to, like, you know, Texas just can't drive in the snow and they're all up at the ski areas. It, of course, we didn't, you know, stop to think that they're subsidizing it for the rest of us. But right. anyway, if you'd asked me where I was going to live when I left Colorado, Texas probably would have been 50th on the list. And I, I discovered Austin and, of course, fell in love with it immediately and then lived here for 40 years. But I also fell in love with Texas. You know, every part of it, every piece of it. And, and, and a lot of that is just the mythology. But the characters and the people are larger than life. They're, they're big and they're bold and they're brassy like Ann Richards and Bob Bullock and George W. Bush and, and, and all these characters. And I think there, there is, and it's part of just that Texas swagger and that Texas entrepreneurial spirit. Um, there's just something kind of big and loud and brassy and entrepreneurial and... Uh, and 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 you know, and friendly to big friendly, you know, stuff. It's just uh, 
it's just it's it's something that I, I think is it, it's in the chromosomes and DNA of, of the Pauls of Texas and uh, that Billy Lee captured so well and I think will into the future. Is there also a sense that it's easy to dismiss that as cartoony? And then peel back the onion and see that there's yeah. more substance there. Well, yeah. Is that the story of Texas politics, too? Yes, it is. And, and by the way, but I think that that's what Billy Lee really did was that, uh, you know, his characters were really nuanced. I mean, they were big and loud and fenced to mocker in the book is, you know, it's, it, he's much more interesting than the, the portraits of LBJ by anybody else that you read. And I think more true and accurate, as are the other characters in the book. And, and, I, and I mentioned in the review that... You know, t- until then, any of the stuff that I'd read or seen on television or movies was all kind of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's, you know, black and white, good and evil. Well, Billy Lee just, you know, he made all his characters were, were, all, were, were some combination of both. You know, nobody was just good or nobody was just evil. They were all complicated characters and ethically challenged, just just like people are in real life. And uh, I, I think that's a, that, was one of, that was one of the reasons that I loved the book as well. When we look at this circus, what makes you hopeful? The, the ambition of the show was that um, having spent many years doing campaigns and in politics, I, I, I see the caricature that it becomes, and, um, but I also uh, see the nobility as well. And, and I... I could never run for office. I wouldn't because I just don't have the stamina or the character or the desire. But I appreciate the people that do. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that I think is interesting and uh, important, uh, entertaining about the candidates themselves, but also the, all the people in their orbit, um, the staff, the family. There's just there's we see pretty one dimensional reflections of what this world is like. And so that was the ambition of the circus was to just give it more dimension so that what people would would uh, hopefully better understand it, hopefully better appreciate it. And and uh, but th- but then that's, you know, in a lot of ways, why I think we're we get the the show has been successful is that now more than ever, people are trying to understand what's going on. And at least everybody, all the other news people and cable people are hitting what's right in front of them. This, you know, this all changes at least hourly. We at least get a week to kind of take a little bit of a back step uh, and put a thematic kind of piece to it and, and hopefully get a little more layered understanding. And we try and really, you know, not just do press conferences and press releases, but, you know, get into the, uh, you know, into the into the back shops and the woodwork of of the campaigns and the the offices, and you know, do something that's a little bit different. Hopefully, understand at a time when I think it's really important that people are really hungry to understand what's going on right now because they're a lot of them are worried about what's what's happening or going to happen. So, uh, but but I'm hopeful. Listen, I and I think that uh, I think we're testing the guardrails of democracy, but they're they're holding so far. Uh, we'll see, but um, uh, I, I'm the eternal optimist. So I, you know, I think that uh, well, this week has been it, it's tough to hold up that optimism. I have to be honest. I mean, it, what a you know what a spectacular spectacle of partisanship we just saw this week. Um, because a lot of what you do, you could they could dismiss as palace intrigue. 
and that once you expose the machinery, the other way of looking at it is, oh, that's just palace intrigue. Look at what's really going. You know, look yeah. look at what we're trying to sell you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This we saw, sort of both sides. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we sure did. So this seems different in that respect. Yeah. Is that it's harder to dismiss. Yeah. As just palace intrigue. Yeah. It was. I think it kind of exposed. This was like a like an X ray that just exposed everything. Right. And maybe that's where we had to go to, you know, we had to claw our way to the bottom to, to, to start back up. But, uh, you know, I helped start this organization called No Labels because, you know, trying to bring the parties together and do some problem solving bipartisanship, which is a really steep hill and a really big rock. But, you know, we've got about 50 members of Congress that have joined and are meeting regularly trying to do things together. and. Uh, you know, incremental progress. But I think increasingly what's going to happen is as we've kind of hit bottom, people are going to say, okay, enough, you know, enough. We, you know, we we don't care if it's a Democratic solution or Republican solution. We, we got big problems. We've got to start working together. And maybe it just took this circus that we're seeing right now to, for people to say, let's try something different. Should anybody be able to eat in any restaurant they want? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I, I think so. Yeah, I do. I do. Regardless of... You know, I, 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 of what you've done politically. Yeah, but I also think that restaurant owners should have the right to to turn away anybody. But if you are allowed into a restaurant, I think I think people should be respectful. You know, I, but I listen. I I do Don Lemon's CNN show every week, and he had an interesting. We had an interesting conversation about this. He feels very strongly that that people should protest. That this is kind of like the modern day version of uh, sitting at the lunch counters uh, or on the bus. So. Uh, I certainly understand people's uh, anger and, and the need to express it. So I get it. I get it. Uh, you know, I just, I, I, my preference is for more civil discourse, but. Let's end where we started. You said, had Hillary won, yeah. there might not have been another season of the circus. But was he not setting up had he lost, that it was an illegitimate presidency, there would have been, maybe not as much, but there would have been quite a narrative that he would have been running on his own opposite that presidency that I think would have carried a second season. No? You may be exactly right. And we may see that again. You may be exactly right. Because you're right. I think he would have said it was illegitimate. They stole the election. He would have set up like a counter-government this is you know, my yeah yeah that's I, my I, I hadn't really thought this through but he wouldn't have just walked off the stage you're right he he wouldn't he would you could you couldn't yank him off the stage with a with a crane i mean you're right there would have been like a shadow government of you know the trump government in exile uh yeah that would that that, that could have been pretty interesting too is that always going to be the case i mean what happens if he doesn't get reelected or let's say he does does he ever leave this job well, here's my, here's my prediction, which okay. I, I, sh- I should never make political predictions <laughs> after what happened with Donald Trump. But um, but here's what I think is likely to happen. I think Donald Trump will run for re-election almost under any circumstance, even if he's even if he's you know, even if there's been impeachment proceedings, face uh, unbelievable legal exposure, whatever it might be, because it's just not psychologically in his DNA to go off the stage at all, or certainly perceived as a loser that he can't win. That's just that. There's nothing we've seen in Donald Trump that would suggest that would ever happen. So he'll run, and I think because he has reshaped the Republican Party in his image. Although, 
and by the way, here's an interesting number. He has the strongest in-party support of any president, Democrat or Republican, in history, except for George W. Bush right after 9-11. Now, I would follow that up with an important caveat, which is I think it's a shrinking base of Republicans, because I know a lot of Republicans who don't who say they're not Republicans anymore, but it's still interesting. But to that point, I think he'll run for re-election. I think he'll win the Republican primaries easily. Now, if the Democrats nominate somebody who's really progressive, and that's where all the physics are headed in the Democratic Party, and let's say it's Elizabeth Warren, just as for example. So if it's Elizabeth Warren and, and Donald Trump, that leaves a huge opening in the middle for someone like a Jeff Flake or Bob Corker or John Kasich or somebody to go say, I'm going to run as an independent, as kind of the new Republican Party, or and kind of reshape what was the old you know, Republican Party. And maybe if they're smart, do something really innovative or creative, like do a, a unity ticket and do a, have a Democratic vice president. And given that scenario, that might make 2020 make uh, the circus look like a zoo and get, get pretty interesting. I mean, you can see kind of a 30-30-30 outcome on that, and then it go to the House of Representatives and get kind of crazy. But I think that also ultimately, I, I know of at least one Republican who's going to run the, like the, the, under the scenario that I just suggested just to throw the election to the Democrats. He, he's, I, I'm not kidding, I said it's a he, but uh, <laughs> because he's so unhappy with Donald Trump. All right, one last turn back around to the beginning. Mm -hmm. So you've got your big gulp and your bad sandwich from 7-Eleven. <laughs> it's mighty tasty, by the way. You were supposed to be following around the midterms and the campaigns and whatnot. Instead, you get sidetracked by the Senate situation with the Supreme Court nomination. Your show has to refigure what it's doing. What's the war room like within your show? Uh in terms of readiness and preparation for when we get a Mueller report. How much are you thinking about that now? Oh, all the time, all the time. And I mean, we, 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 we're, we've got those, we've got those uh, we're loaded and we're ready to go because we know they could drop any moment. It'll be the, the most important moment of this presidency. Uh, so we're, we've thought a lot about that. It's on the shelf. But to your point about uh, we have to constantly adapt in this show and we – you know, our our bookers have one of the hardest jobs in the business. This is a good example. We had planned to come down here for the Trib Fest, and we're going to go cover the Beto rally tomorrow night, and there was going to be a debate Sunday night, and we we're going to get with Ted Cruz next week and, and some of the governor's candidates and, you know, MJ Hager and uh, Dan Crenshaw down in Houston and you know a bunch of Texas stuff go to the border because it was going to be an all Texas episode and so then we have the Jeff Flake situation that happened this morning we're going to have to fly back to Washington and that happened well we're we're 3 weeks in now we've been planning to be out around America covering the midterms we haven't gotten out of Washington yet your guess is that Mueller comes after the midterms though yes right? i'm almost certain of that okay. i mean it's kind of an it's not a like a it's an unwritten protocol, at the very least, that you don't drop this stuff in the middle of an election. And September 1st was kind of that deadline to say, okay, everything, pause. Because it, it just would look overtly political. I and mean, we saw that what happened with Comey and all that during the presidential. So they, want, they don't want it to be perceived as affecting the, uh, the, the outcome of the election. That'll be the biggest, craziest moment of our political lifetime. I agree. And here's my prediction on that. Maybe we'll just close with this. But it's that I, right. think, I think the collusion and, and or... Um, obstruction of justice would uh, maybe may the least of Donald Trump's problems. I mean, I think that uh, I, I think the way Mueller is approaching this, 
I mean, he's got tax records. And, you know, you don't come out of that in New York. Really. First of all, I don't think Donald Trump ever expected to be president. I know that. Right. He was as surprised as anybody. It was just going to be this, you know, get out there and, you know, get a bunch of the spotlight and help his brand and, you know, kind of mix it up and have fun in Trump style. And then he's going to go back and endorse Chris Christie. That was his plan. And so suddenly he's elected president. He's got all this, I, you know, argue, well, theoretically, very problematic business stuff from his days. Is, you know, nobody's in New York real estate that doesn't, you know, bend a few corners and maybe a lot of them. And so I think that, you know, it could be. Who knows? Tax evasion, money laundering, all kinds of other crimes that that could be pretty. I mean, one thing we know is that Robert Mueller is a very, very serious guy, and he's going to look everywhere. And so, and I think that's why Trump has been so, uh, you know, so obsessed by it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be back home. New episodes of The Circus air Sunday night, 7 o'clock on Showtime. This podcast is brought to you by the Carbach Brewing Company. Love Street is a coast-style blonde, and it's as easygoing as you are. Brewed with floral German hops, it fits any mood and any occasion. Sometimes all you need is Love Street. Brewed with love in Houston, Texas at the Carbach Brewing Company. As for us, we're on newsstands now with our October issues celebrating Dallas, the classic television show, and on Online anytime you'd like at texasmonthly.com. While you're at texasmonthly.com, you can find information on November's ninth annual Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest weekend. The top 50 barbecue joints in Texas have all been invited, and on the site you'll find the new weekend schedule, including our first ever Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest Franklin and Friends kickoff event. And if you like what you heard here, consider subscribing to the National Podcast of Texas on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, or Spreaker, sharing it on social media, or maybe even leaving a recommendation on one of those services. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week. You've been listening to the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine.